Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape for this election. We have an outstanding panel today, including independent political strategist, Lincoln Project co-founder, and our captain on this ship, Reed Galen. Good morning, Reed. Hey, Ron. Lincoln Project Executive Director, a veteran of four presidential campaigns and a former director at the National Security Council, Sarah Lenti. Sarah, thanks for being on again. Good morning. And making her Lincoln Project podcast debut is political strategist, crisis communications consultant, and Lincoln Project senior advisor, Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be with you. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at some of the newly released tapes of Bob Woodward's interviews with Donald Trump. We'll also look at what the recent plummet in the United States' global popularity means for our national security and key wins for voting access that happened this week. So let's start with the new Woodward tapes. In an April 13th call with legendary journalist Bob Woodward, Trump said that the coronavirus is a killer if it gets you. He went on to say that it rips you apart and called it the plague. This call took place three days after Trump tweeted that the virus will soon be in full retreat, just four days after the call Trump took to Twitter to back the protesters who gathered in opposition to stay-at-home orders in Michigan, Minnesota, and Virginia, calling for them to liberate their states. And we also learned from that same interview that Trump and several others fled the Oval Office after someone sneezed. So I want to put this open question on the table. Um, The White House clearly had a good understanding of how dangerous this virus was and how it was transmitted. So can you react to the difference between what Trump said and did in private and what he was saying publicly? Reed, maybe let's start with you. I mean, it's not any surprise, I suppose. He does everything for his own self-protection and what he needed to avoid in his own mind was taking responsibility for the pandemic because that meant that if things went badly, uh, as they have, then he would be on the hook for it, which he is. Um, But in his mind, if he pretended in public like it wasn't a big deal, then in the, you know, the very interesting psychology of Donald Trump's brain, then it wasn't his fault and it didn't really matter. Um, And so I think that you see that there are two sides of this guy. And I think sometimes we we call him, you know, stupid or an idiot or ignorant or whatever. But we should understand that, like, he fully understood the import of what he was being told. He had fully internalized it and was able to regurgitate it to Bob Woodward on several occasions. What he did was sinister in its nature, actually. So we should not let him off the hook by saying he's just too dumb to know better. He knew exactly what he was doing. So when you know, I think it was after that first call with Woodward, he had, you know, he went to a rally and called it a Democratic hoax. Now he's saying, you know, liberate, you know, liberate these states. And so it's a combination of him uh, trying to deflect, as he always does, but then also rile up his base, which he's done on this whole mask thing, which we see even to this day, but largely, you know, distract people, including the media, who often take the bait far too often uh, from the issues that were really before him, uh, because he had no capability to listen to experts let alone understand how to put the 
vast assets of the uh, federal government into action. And lastly, um, you know, as, as Jared Kushner said in the conference room, right, like, let the blue states die. Susan, what's your take? To follow up on what Reed said is the president always views it us against them. And if he can get those protesters in Michigan and use them as an us versus them argument, he then changes it into a political argument, which is exactly where he's the most comfortable. He had the president had no desire to protect his country. He looked at it as a political problem and tried to find political solutions. It did not work. What's also so disturbing about those tapes with Woodward is that Donald Trump almost used the the danger of the virus as a way to boast to Woodward. Like, I think he wanted to show I'm strong. I'm handling this most dangerous crisis. And yet at the same time was willing to lie to the public because in some way he thought that would make him be strong. Sarah? There's nothing new here. I, I'm most disturbed, I think, by the fact that he had his national security briefing at the end of January. Um, he knew what was going on in China. He had talked to President Xi. And and that, to me, is the biggest dereliction of duty that one could 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 do. So uh, to me, I, I just it goes back to the getting having those briefings. And how do you ignore that? I just want to make this one point really clear, because last week when we talked about this, we mentioned for our listeners that this these tapes totally changed the nature of the information that we have around the president's handling of the coronavirus because i think a lot of voters were still giving him the benefit of the doubt um for not wanting to cause panic for example which is what he said right it was his excuse but we now know it is not just about not having the information the president had the information he worked against releasing it he covered it up it's almost like the russian bounties so sarah can you talk about what this means for our national security for the president to do something like this? Right. right. And so, so first I want to say um, that I don't think the president was sitting in his office thinking, oh, I want 200,000 people to die. But what he wasn't doing is he wasn't being thoughtful. He wasn't listening if, he, if his team, if the team around him, and we know that Dr. Fauci was there. We know he was getting the information. We know he was briefed at the end of January by his national security team, the fact that he chose not to act is the hugest, it's a dereliction of duty. It's just, you know, this many people didn't have to die. And that goes straight to the point on our security. We have a president that's thinking about himself and this election um, and not about the, the health and well-being of the American people. He is the leader. He, he is our leader. He's supposed to be protecting Americans. That to me is extremely dangerous to, to just not to not have that is why you're in office. It's to take care of America, not just Republicans, all Americans. I also worry a lot of people view Bob Woodward as a lefty journalist that's just out there to get the president. He's not. He's a very thoughtful. I actually know Bob. He's a very thoughtful journalist. And he the president chose to sit down with him. He chose to say what he said. We can't forget that. Yeah. And it, this it's it, he did. Bob didn't make it up. The president said it. He absolutely did. Bob is very clear on things like this. Yeah. Reed and Susan, I just let's let's close this topic by zooming out a little bit and talking about what it means for the country when the president is actively working against the public interest. Well, has Trump ever done anything other than that? Everything everything he does is in his own personal interest. Therefore, only if and if those rare occasions when the public interest and his own interest come into line, 
you know, do, do the two meet? Um, and, you know, normally um, a president of the United States would say, my personal interest is the public interest. That's not the case with, uh, with, with this president, nor will it ever be. And so I think that as we look forward to the next 45 or so days, you know, all Americans should remember that. It's not going to get better from here. He's not, he believes, because he must believe, that he's done a good job on COVID. You know, his, his take the other night was, well, you know, we'll get the herd mentality, which he meant immunity. Um, you know, that, that means two and a half Americans. Like he, you know, it's hard for anybody to conceptualize that. Um, especially in the United States. But for him, you know, so long as he sits in a big guarded house with men with guns protecting him and a big armored tank he drives around in, like it's it it's it's conceptual to him at best and you know it's fantasy land at worst. I wish Americans would remember, I mean, not that they're gonna remember, but President Bush, I I mean, Reed, you know this, was really focused on pandemics at the end of his term. And it would be so different if he were in office now. I, I mean, everybody would be wearing a mask. This is just this is this isn't right. Well, and to follow up on that, there's a bigger picture here is that Donald Trump even take away his agenda of himself. He was incapable of understanding what to do. He has no idea how governance works. He doesn't understand the branches of government. He doesn't understand what was at his disposal. He because of his own insecurity, he's unable to reach out and ask others for help and for advice. Somehow he has to know more than the generals, more than the doctors say, I'm pretty good at this. I, I could have gone into medical school. It, it's absurd. And that's the real danger. I mean, he saw, of course, the way he puts himself before country is of great concern, but his incompetency and aptitude is, is chilling. He does not know how to manage the country and he worse yet never sought to learn. I want to take a look at a new poll that the Pew Research Center conducted. They poll annually on the global standing of the United States and have witnessed a major drop in how the United States and the president are viewed worldwide. Across the 13 countries polled, only 34% of respondents had a positive view of the United States. The only country where a majority of people viewed the U.S. positively was South Korea. Now, this poll counts seven countries hitting an all-time low in their views toward the United States since Pew began their annual polling in 2002. But perhaps the most concerning and obvious result is how the world views Donald Trump. Across all 13 countries, only 16% of people responded that they were confident Trump would do the right thing regarding world affairs. That's less than the 23% who have confidence in Vladimir Putin and less than the 19% who have confidence in Xi Jinping. Of China. It's also less than the 84% of respondents who had confidence in President Obama in 2016. So, Sarah, can you help us understand the national security implications of this drop in respect for the United States and confidence in the president? Sure. Internationally, if there are world leaders out there or dictators, whatever you want to call them, that view America as weak, we become a, a, a more ready target. Um, and then in, in, on the international scene as well, if you're sitting in NATO, which we the president has basically dissed NATO, and Merkel has her, her approval rating is way higher, as is Macron's, I mean, you can go down the list, they then become viewed as the leaders of the free world. And that's an issue not only economically, it's an issue, like I said, you become more vulnerable to potential terrorist threats. People view us as weak and a target. Um, I'd love to know what the others think. 
I think Sarah's point is right. For the first time since the end of World War, actually since the beginning of World War II, the president of the United States is no longer the leader of the free world. In fact, he doesn't even appear to like the free world um, and does not appear, appear to care to be part of it. And so I think that, as Sarah noted, you know, these things have to do with, um, you know, you know, sometimes we, we break it down into economics and trade. But, you know, I think there's also the broader piece here that this president has destroyed every last bit of what it meant to be a traditional American conservative. No more so probably. Actually, he's done it all through all three legs of the stool, stool or sawed off at this point. But, you know, America under Ronald Reagan was the, you know, the, the shining city on a hill. We were the beacon of democracy and freedom for 70 years, almost 80 years in the world. And we are not now. And that has a market effect not only on uh, the rest of the world, but also on ourselves. Because what it means is, is that there's a broader, there's a, there's a, at least a big enough piece of the United States and its population that says this stuff doesn't matter anymore. Once you start down that road, it's very hard to return. And so I think that's why this election is so important is that we must return to a place where the United States takes care of itself internally and looks out for the world externally. And think of the juxtaposition here, Nazi Germany, right? And now you have a female chancellor of Germany as the leader of the free world. Think about that. Yeah. And one where not only is she, I think she's like a chemical physicist or something. I mean, she's like a genius. Um, but if, if Trump had managed the pandemic in the United States as Chancellor Merkel has in Germany, 150,000 more Americans would be alive today. 150,000. I mean, it's, it, 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 you can't calculate the loss to those families and you know to the 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 psychic effect of all of that and that this would be one where it would still be an enormous tragedy but one that we would be managing and now it is in control the 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 coronavirus is in control and as the head of the CDC said yesterday and he did not misunderstand the questions like this is going to be with us for at least the next year if not year and a half or two years yeah i just want to also follow up on what what Reed and Sarah were saying is that you can't be the, the the leader of the free world when you have no principles or core convictions. And even if it was previous presidents that we disagreed with, there was print, they were principled. This president has none of that. And I think especially looking at that Pew poll in light of the coronavirus, one thing stands out to me. We were the only country in the world who could have insisted on, to China that we allow our doctors and medical people in to map this disease early. But the yeah. president refused to do that because he was worried about a trade deal. And that's what it came down to. He thought the trade deal would help him win re-election. He did not insist that we map this disease, which no one was more prepared to do than we did. So we didn't even see the real effects until much later. We should have been there early. And again, so what does that leave the rest of the world to think of us? We don't act with leadership. They cannot rely on us. We are not working together to fight this pandemic. Nations are not working together with the United States. We yeah. are standing alone and we are so much weaker for it. Yeah. I mean, even in the nationalistic frame that Trump you know, wants to, that they're using this campaign, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't square that he has totally 
ruin the United States reputation on the global stage. I mean, even South Korea, which is, you know, the uh, where where we have the strongest reputation in this in this latest poll, as early as in 2015, as recent as in 2015, 88% of South Korean respondents had confidence in Obama. 17% have confidence in Trump. 17%. Reed, way back in one of our first episodes, we talked about rebuilding the US reputation on a global scale. I think that's something that you brought up. Why is Joe Biden equipped to pull us out of this freefall? For a couple of reasons. One, because he spent a lot of time, I believe, on the Foreign Affairs Committee when he was in the United States Senate. And then just as, you know, as part of President Obama's national security team as vice president, he just has a, a very clear understanding of how foreign affairs typically works. And, you know, lastly is he has a desire, I believe, to bring um, you know, the United States back into the League of Nations, like it's a bad, bad way to put it, but um, you know, let's call it, you know, a full-fledged member of the G7 group of uh, industrialized countries, democratic countries in which, you know, we are, as, as I think Susan noted, we are far stronger together than we are separately. And as, as Sarah noted, um, when you're on your own, um, a lot more folks are going to try and pick you off because you have nobody there to defend you. And so, you know, now it's like, oh, okay, well, we, you know, we played footsie with the Chinese and the Russians and the North Koreans, and we, you know, we, we, you know, slapped the Iranians and, you know, now the Saudis are our friends and the Turks, you know, despite what they do are our friends. And so, you know, this is not, this is a good group of guys to hang out with. Um, they're not going to have your back when you need it. And so, you know, this is, this is classic Trump. I mean, we get a lot of questions from listeners about how to talk to their friends and family. How would you talk to a thoughtful Republican voter about this? I think you have to recognize that in 2016, you let them kind of off the hook, if you will, that maybe you, you couldn't stand Hillary Clinton, but and Donald Trump didn't have a record. But now he has a record. He has shown us who he is. I would argue he showed us all along who he was, but he he now is working towards a creating a party and a government that serves just him. That is not who we are as a nation. And I am voting for Joe Biden, but that doesn't mean that I'm not ready to oppose some of his policies come January 2021 when he's inaugurated. And that's okay. I'm not, it's not a sacrifice of principles or policies. It's about putting decency ahead of this man who believes he and he alone can fix it. He and he alone is entitled to rule over the military and the people of this country serving only himself. I want to talk about two stories out of two different potential battleground states. On Monday night, Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that the Green Party presidential candidate is ineligible to appear on the ballot. Local election officials reported that a change to their ballots this late would have made it nearly impossible to send ballots on time and for mail-in ballots to be counted. And then on Tuesday, a judge in Ohio ruled that the restriction to limit counties to a single ballot drop box was arbitrary and unreasonable. Under the single drop box rule, counties like Cuyahoga, where Cleveland is located, would have a single drop box for more than 860,000 registered voters. So Reed, these were both Republican efforts to try to reduce the number of people who can vote. Can you explain why they're doing that? Sure, because they're afraid that there are more people who are going to vote against them than vote for them, and they're right. Political parties typically use 
method by which it is far more difficult for their opponents to participate in the electoral process when they're concerned that whatever ideological or philosophical underpinning their their effort has uh, no longer resonates. And there's certainly uh, a lot of truth to that with the GOP. They don't even anything anymore. And in fact, their party, their literally their party platform is whatever Donald Trump believes, we believe too. So um, it does not surprise me. It's always disappointing, um, especially with you know in Ohio with the Secretary of State. While he is a Republican, you know he has a responsibility to be the chief elections officer for all Ohioans. Um, you would think that a guy like Mike DeWine would be uh, concerned about that, given that he seemed to be a pretty sensible guy through all this. Um, but I think we should never we should never forget the depths to which this Republican Party, uh, and maybe for a long time, as as our our partner Stewart wrote in his book, it was all a lie. Have done their best to disenfranchise people when they could. Um, and I think also, like you saw the thing with the Green Party in Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah. don't forget Kanye West, right? That was all mm-hmm. a brainchild of some genius within the Republican Party to try and throw off extra votes to, you know, to whether or not it was Kanye or in the, in the, in the you know, the idea of the Greens was whoever the Greens were going to put up would theoretically, you know, take votes from Biden. I would say that if you vote for a Green Party candidate, it's just like if you vote for a Libertarian, like you're not a Republican and you're not a Democrat. Like you probably wouldn't vote anyway. Um, but in their mind, it's just one more way to sort of cause disruption, confusion, throw sand in the gears. And that's this whole ballgame now from yeah. Trump on down yeah. is the whole yeah. ballgame is to scare, confuse, make it more difficult. We've seen this already in Wisconsin. We've seen it in Kentucky this year. We've seen it in Georgia this year. We saw it in Georgia just this week with the University of Georgia saying, that they're not going to allow um, you know, students to vote at the on-campus polling places. They're going to bus them and take them into downtown Atlanta. Let me tell you, as somebody who you know, loves college students, like they'll find any reason not to do something. If you say you want to participate, you have to get a shuttle bus and go 20 minutes into town. Like They're not going to do not it. Not happening. Yeah. And right. so you know, this, it's, it's all of a type. Um, and so we should not be surprised. And anytime we see it, we should make note of it. We should shine a light on it. And we should make those people famous. Yeah, Reed, can you you mentioned more sand in the gears. Can you talk a little bit about what voters need to be on the lookout for going forward? I mean, starting right now up through election day. You know, I mean, we saw a couple of weeks ago that there were phone calls going into African American households in Detroit saying, Don't vote by mail. They're gonna know where you live. They're gonna come execute warrants against you. Um, in Ohio, we did see that they, you know, they were there was a video circulating that said, you know, it has a republic. You know, an R or a D for Republican or Democrat on the outside of your ballot. So, you know, the 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 male people are going to throw them away. It turns out that video actually originated in a primary in Florida. So, there's going to be a lot of disinformation. So, you know, if you know, you can either go to to vote.org or to your state secretary of state website or your county registrar uh, office and understand what it is you have to do. Um, but you know, look, read the instructions on your ballot. Vote your ballot get it in, put a stamp on it, throw it in the mailbox. If you can, take it to you know a Dropbox. Don't let anything get in the way of you participating. Understand when and how the deadlines are. But I would say this is like, if it doesn't have, you know, if it ain't from your local government, and if it's not from your state government, you know, don't buy it. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, have, they take this stuff seriously. I believe that the Postal Service generally takes this stuff seriously. Um, but there's going to be a lot of noise. And unless and until someone who actually got elected to a job says, this is how we're doing this. Don't listen. Um, and, you know, try and get as many sources of media as you can. Facebook is probably the leading purveyor of conspiracy theories and nut job ideas. 
So maybe turn the Facebook off when you're voting. Yeah. Sarah and Susan, do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of planning ahead, especially when you've got um, kids, families? What should voters be doing now? Um, Well, I know that um, there are some family members and friends of mine that are not going to be in their hometowns um, during the uh, the election. And so they have worked um, and made sure that they have their their ballots forwarded to the places of um, the, the towns and cities that they're going to be in. If they're going to be internationally, they're getting them in early. So I think people just need to really think about where they are, where those ballots are coming to and making sure that they're going to be mailed in on time. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's a simple, it seems simple, but you know, people are busy and we've got all this remote learning going on and life is a little complicated because of COVID, but we can't be, um, we have to be ready. And so I would just say that people should know what, where they're going to be and when to drop their ballots. Yeah. And just to follow up on that, I would say apply for your absentee ballot application now, fill it out and make sure too much time doesn't go by until you get your ballot, if, um, depending on your state, when, as far as the when they will send them out. And the reason I mention that is the ACLU did a study in Florida of the 2018 elections, and they found that minorities and young people made the most errors on their applications and they were the highest, the group in the highest proportion not to fix it to get their ballot. So Florida, who's been doing voting by mail for, for a while now, they're used to this. Most Americans are not um, in these numbers. So look at that application, follow it carefully. If you don't get your ballot in a reasonable amount of time, follow up on it. And if you do get a notice that the application wasn't filled out properly, fix it immediately. All right. Now that we're up to speed on what happened this week, let's let's turn to the week ahead. Um, Reed, as we prepare for this coming week, which is going to be bonkers, what are you watching? Um, again, I think that you're going to see the uh, level of rhetoric from the president and all his allies ramp up on the uh, election being rigged and vote by mail once again being, um, you know, dangerous because um, they're losing. And in many places, they're losing badly. And he knows that. And so every tick of a point on a survey result that shows Trump losing more will increase exponentially the level of uh, chaos that they will try and inject into this process. And we must stay steady. We must participate and we must beat them and we must beat them badly. And so I would say this is, again, you know, as I noted earlier, like don't fall for the ugliness. Don't fall for the chaos. Stay steady. Get your vote, you know, get your ballot filled out. If you can vote early, if you feel comfortable and if you have to vote, you know, vote in person, um, take all the precautions you need to. But what I look forward to is an unprecedented level of undemocratic behavior out of this president, his administration and his political allies, a lot of whom, frankly, we, we all know, um, and have decided that this is the way that they're going to participate, um, between now and November 3rd. It's disappointing. It's shameful. Um, and I think that, you know, everyone, uh, who is participating and abetting in this behavior uh, has a lot to answer for. Reed, before we before we go on to um, Sarah and and Susan for their stories, I wonder if you could just add to that thought. And I know we've we've covered this maybe once before with Mike, but can you explain for our listeners very briefly why it's so important that we see record numbers of turnout and that we beat him badly, uh, and, and what that has to do with the week and months potentially following election day? 
sure. If, you know, having, we've had the president's niece, Mary Trump on several times. And, and she made the point that if Donald Trump loses badly, if he is, if it is an electoral blowout, um, he is likely to take the sort of, you know, loser authoritarian, you know, perspective, which is these people didn't deserve me anyway. Um, I've tried to do everything I can for these people. I don't really like this job. I'm going to go make money. But if it's close, if it's close, and they're going to do everything they can to say, well, I'm winning on election day. Stop the voting. I'm, I'm winning. And at least 30% of the country is going to agree with them. And so, you know, you could see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the streets. It's going to be ugly. The president has enormous executive authority uh, that has never really been exercised by former presidents, certainly not against or within the United States. Uh, and I think we should expect a lot of that. And so why is it so important that we beat him and beat him badly? Uh, so he knows it's time for him to go. So that Bill Barr says, you know what, I've got to make a calcul I've got to make a calculation here, which is, am I really going to turn the country inside out and put myself further risk of prosecution? Um, Mitch McConnell and all the Senate, um, you know, collaborators who are likely on their way to, you know, defeat this fall have to make a decision about what they really care about. Right now, it appears that they care more about power in their offices than they do about protecting the country or the Constitution. And so, you know, I, I think it's former director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, former senator from Indiana, said today, democracy's on the ballot. And it's, it, is, it is that big a deal. Democracy is on the ballot. Do you want a country in which Joe Biden and his administration can start to heal this country, both physically and spiritually and politically? Or do we want one where what we see in the streets um, with, you know, the Boogaloo boys and, you know, nameless and faceless federal officers um, you know, rampaging. Is that what we want? Because that's four more years of Donald Trump. Sarah, as we look at the week ahead, mm -hmm. what are you watching? So I'm kind of focused at the state level. I'm really curious as to what is going to happen in uh, Maine. We know that Sarah Gideon is leading um, uh, Senator Collins right now. And so I'm, I'm watching that closely. I think things are tightening up in Arizona. So I'll be watching that as well. And then I think the money, you know, we know that President uh, Trump, his campaign has blown through a billion dollars and um, they've pulled spots across the nation. So we'll also, I'll also be watching for that and just kind of following the money trail. Susan, how about you? And we know that the Trump's COVID-19 response is basically influencing most voters' decisions right now and their, their priority concerns. And what I'm concerned about looking towards next week and the coming weeks is we're about to head into flu season. And I am worried about what lies and deceit Donald Trump and this administration, especially in light of what's happened at the CDC and their public affairs person spreading lies and, and, and craziness, frankly, that Americans need to be protected. And we must, must follow the, the, the guidelines offered by the professionals, because I think Donald Trump will, will be willing to let people die just to get reelected. And before we wrap for today, I want to bring in a listener question and a couple of comments. The question comes from Andre Palomarchuk, and he writes, I've heard a lot about how Trump wants to win by suppressing the vote, but they don't go into detail about why that could work. How would voter suppression impact Biden voters more than Trump voters? Um, Susan, do you want to take this one? Sure. Uh, let's just look no further than Wisconsin in 2016, where Hillary Clinton underperformed Barack Obama by about 15% based on an effort to suppress the vote. 
Donald Trump actually got fewer votes, about 2,000 fewer votes than Mitt Romney did in, in 2012. So that is a perfect example of this effort to suppress the vote, meaning Wisconsin basically went to Donald Trump for the sole purpose that people didn't show up to vote who normally would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, whether or not it's things like the University of Georgia saying they're not going to allow poor students to participate on campus, uh, whether or not it is finding ways to communicate to uh, African-American voters that it might not be safe to participate, whether or not it is with um, you know, senior voters saying it's too dangerous, whatever the case might be, it, you know, it, it all, it's all of a type. And they, this has been a strategy literally since they really started talking about the, the re-election, which is they must depress turnout across the board. It must be a low turnout election. He can't win a high turnout election. He only wins with division, disunion, chaos, ugliness, because people who will otherwise vote for Joe Biden say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. It's too ugly. I'm scared. And they stay home. That's how Trump wins. Okay. And I just want to read two quick listener comments because you know we ask you to write in and, uh, and send us your thoughts all the time and we get them all. And I just wanted to call out a couple that were really terrific. So Curtis Reisinger says, I hope that y'all get these emails all the time, but the Ann Applebaum episode finally convinced my mom to vote for Biden. She even went and picked up Twilight of Democracy. Thank you so much for doing this work. And thank you, Curtis, for writing in. Gail Chiravano also writes, I took your advice and just completed my poll worker training, and I'm ready to do what it takes to get our country back. So thanks, Gail. Thank you to Reed, Susan, and Sarah for being on the show today. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.